This is a podcast by The Straits Times. You're listening to In Your Opinion, a podcast series by The Straits Times. I'm your host, Ernest Lewis. Now, earlier this month in March, Parliament passed the government's $123.7 billion spending plans for the coming financial year. And with me in the studio for this episode is someone who sat through watching the 70 hours of debates in Parliament. She helped organise SD's coverage for the public to better understand ministry spending plans for the year. Hers may be a familiar voice to many of you by now, my colleague Grace Ho. She initially hosted this podcast till this year when she took on a new role in ST, moving from being inside editor to deputy news editor. So hi Grace and welcome back to the show. Glad to have you in front of the mic again after so many episodes. uh, Was it what, four four to five episodes? I haven't been keeping track, but thanks (laughs) Ernest for having me back. It's same, same, but different. You summed up in one of your columns that this year's budget is about moving forward in a new era. So can you choose three to four words that best describe what we can expect more of in a post-pandemic Singapore? I would use uh, two words and one phrase. So the two words are fair and inclusive. And the phrase is what you mentioned, a new era. But before we go into each of these, I'd just like to make the point that this idea of fairness and inclusion isn't new. It's not as if every budget that comes up each year suddenly, you know, wipes the slate clean and comes up with a completely new agenda. So we saw this same um, thematic thread in the 2022 budget as well. Right. Because if you remember, in 2022, it was announced that there would be higher personal income taxes for the top 1.2% of taxpayers in Singapore. So it's this whole idea of being progressive, you know, that those who earn more contribute more. Mm, Okay, so fair is your first word. And I mean, obviously, it's very subjective, but to be clearer about it, uh, what was your best example of what was truly fair, you know, what you saw on paper and what was truly fair for Singaporeans from this year's budget? I actually thought that the buyer's stamp duty hike for higher value residential and non-residential properties was a very fair move. To put it very simply, those who can pay more, pay more. So this builds on changes to property tax rates that were already announced in Budget 2022 with steeper hikes for higher-end properties, especially investment properties. Clearly, you know, there are some people who are wealthy enough to not just buy for a living in the house on their own, but also for investment. So I've had acquaintances and some friends who are a little bit unhappy with the fact that you have higher tax rates for residential property in excess of 1.5 million. Because yeah. uh, some of them will point out that new condominiums for a family of four or five already cost about more than 1.5 million. Yeah. If you think about it, to be very honest, if you are living in a condo, you're not part of the middle. You're actually part of the top 21% of Singaporeans who live in private housing. Mm. In other words, you are the top one-fifth of the population. And the government is a broad church in the sense that it has to cope. I mean, it has to deal with the broad middle of Singaporeans. And it can't please everyone. And in the end, if you think about it, every cent that the state collects from taxes, you know, not just property, but GST, your so-called sin taxes like tobacco, alcohol, all of this actually flows back to Singaporeans in one way or another. And more of that goes to those who need it the most. You're Mm. talking about grants for families of young children, buying the first home, employment support measures, financial incentives for parenthood, early childhood, education, 
help with cost of living and so on. But on the subject of fairness, I think another interesting point, which I think some of my friends raised, were the change in working mother's child relief from a percentage to a fixed dollar relief. Some people actually felt that, hey, um, it's going to disincentivize working mothers you know, who are high achieving for wanting to earn more and stay in the workforce. Because if you think about it, it doesn't take very long for a fresh graduate to really hit that amount. You're talking about about 4K plus. So mm-hmm. basically, if you've been working for a number of years, you would be able to earn that, that salary. On the other hand, I can also understand DPM Lawrence Wong's explanation that based on the government's experience over the years, young couples in this income group typically base their decisions their children on other factors and not so much the WMCR initiative. Plus, things have now changed. So fertility is declining across all the income segments, um, not just you know this particular segment of working mothers. And so we need to encourage couples in all income groups to have more children, which again goes back to the question of fairness and inclusion. Yeah, because I mean, you sort of wrote that, you know, if everyone were to expect that, oh, something must be catered to me in my socioeconomic status or my particular income band, then there's no end, right? As you said, I mean, the, I guess the government, to be fair, the government can't really please every single person from uh, Jurong West to Changi <laughs> and Indeed. Woodlands to maybe, you know, uh, Buena Vista or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So, so definitely, um, I, I think it's trying its best to kind of level the playing field and also even up and level up some of the contributions, you know, paid by those who can afford to. And of course, in that process, of course, some people will be not too happy about it. I mean, I was looking at the percentage, the the change from the percentage uh, to a fixed dollar relief. Mm. It does help um, mothers with who are of lower income. Absolutely. Yeah, it does, it does. So, yeah. and I, I do feel that if you are a little bit better off in this country, then yeah, you got to probably see it in a different light that you are contributing in some rather unseen way mm-hmm. to others, you know, who are less fortunate than you, perhaps. You yep. Know. And okay, so that's sort of your best example for what is fair. And your second word, I remember, was uh, inclusive. So, give me your best example of what you thought was truly inclusive from uh, this year's budget. Again, it's housing, (laughs) a really, really hot-button issue. A new priority category called first-timer parents and married couples will receive one additional ballot for their BTO or sale of balance flat, and the existing parenthood priority scheme will also be adjusted so that all these are FTPMC, you know, the abbreviation, um, will also qualify, and not just those who have children or are expecting so that's inclusive because it expands, you know, the field um, to, to other couples as well. But while this year's budget housing measures focus on groups with the most urgent needs like these married couples and young families, the resale housing grant also does apply to singles too. So that's something for singles in terms of helping them to access the resale market. But I think beyond this whole issue of housing, you know, which has been set to death, um, what I really appreciated was the attempt to boost inclusion for the disadvantaged and to do it in a way that takes care of a person's entire life cycle. So if you look at persons with disabilities, for example, some enabling services hubs will be brought closer to them, to their homes in the HDB heartland, so that they don't have to keep travelling out. And this sort of wraparound in the comprehensive help is also seen in the nationwide expansion of Comlink, so, you know, these are for the uh, lower-income families uh, with young children. Uh, for example, since November last year, all families uh, with children who moved into rental flats have also automatically been offered Comlink support under the Comlink rental scheme. 
I think one of the issues in the past was that, you know, people had to go out and approach agency to agency mm, yeah. for help, which is actually very taxing on one's cognitive bandwidth, especially when you're already tied up with trying to, you know, make sure that you're putting food on the table, yeah. bringing income in. So what they've tried over the years is to really consolidate some of these services and to bring it to you rather than you having to kind of, you know, go out mm. there and, and make that sort of effort on your behalf. And very interestingly, and I know this is not like a headline topic, but yeah. um, the hospitals themselves are even identifying and encouraging eligible mothers to sign up to programs like Kidstart when they are still pregnant. In other words, the nurses, the doctors are identifying some of these potentially vulnerable people. For example, in terms of very young mothers, single mothers, uh, certain income groups, and actually saying, hey, there's this help, you know, even yeah. when you're still in hospital or in the, in the prenatal stage, and saying, please, please sign up early. So by intervening early to improve subsequent education and life outcomes, we are hoping to therefore sustain that social mobility across generations. And it makes sense for the authorities because they have access to all our data and records, right? I mean, as you said, then all the agencies have to do is just talk to each other, you know, using the internet on the records. And then they are able to identify the profiles and then say, okay, this profile needs help. Rather than expect that person to be proactive, you know, the old school way would be, oh, wait a minute, I need help. I'm asking my friends. I'm going to see my MP. Yeah. And am I free to go and see my MP this week? And then i got to claim one side here, claim one side, the other side, then claim the third side. Exactly. And then try and figure out, by the time I wait for all the approvals, oh. Yeah, to figure out which forms you have to fill up. <laughs> so so right now, at least, you know, I think they're, they're preventing people from falling through the cracks in okay. a much more targeted but at the same time, also a more encompassing way. And that's good. Yeah, that's yeah. good. I hope they do more of preventing people from falling through the cracks, exactly. That seems to be our problem, even though we are much more advanced as a nation. Yeah. Absolutely. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. And now back to our podcast episode. Back to my conversation with ST's Deputy News Editor Grace Ho, summing up the government's Budget 2023 spending plans for the coming financial year. So Grace, you've already used the words fair, inclusive, and you said you had a next phrase to describe what I wanted to ask you, which is describing the mood and feel that was coming from the Parliament uh, sessions. And also, you know, taking into consideration we are moving into this immediate post-pandemic future. And you, you said new era. Hmm. So give me a best example of what you think symbolised this start of this new era. I actually can't pin it down to one particular example. But I think let's preface that with um, looking at the amount of time spent on the respective ministries and the number of questions raised. Uh, in technical terms, this is what we call cuts to the respective ministries' uh, plans and budgets. So ministries with the longest clarification time Ministry of Education, Ministry of National Development, Ministry of Manpower. And Ministry of National Development had the longest debate at close to six hours. So clearly it's a perennial concern, uh, Mm. housing. And then in terms of the general public response, I think to the the quantitative changes, you know, so we're talking about increases in grants, baby bonus, that sort of thing has been positive. So let's say you take a baby boosting budget measures, for example. You have more cash gifts. You have four weeks instead of two weeks government-paid paternity leave. This couldn't have been a more welcome Valentine's Day gift <laughs> to couples planning to have children. And for education announcements, not having to sit mid-year exams in JC from 2024, which brings it in line with the scrapping of such exams at the primary and secondary levels you know, this year. 
And then from 2026, JC and Millennium Institute students don't need to count their fourth content-based subject in university admissions unless it improves their score. And also grading project work is a pass or fail instead of an A or a B grade. Mm. So if you look at this whole suite of changes across almost every ministry, um, they're really meant to give, to really level the playing field for people. And education, for example, it's also to give people that leeway to pursue their interests without having to worry about your KPIs, your results all the time. And we're encouraging people to also come together and mix, you know, in the community and schools. But I think in this new era, there are also lingering questions about the qualitative impact of these moves because there is a larger lifestyle and mindset issue, which in a sense is outside of government jurisdiction. Mm. So for example, yes, I have four weeks of paternity leave, but am I worried about the risk I'm taking to my career if I actually avail myself of the full uh, duration of paternity leave? Same thing for the mothers who are now taking the additional unpaid infant care leave available to them. I remember when my husband went on paternity leave, and back then it wasn't even two weeks. He was on his laptop most of the time and still answering questions yeah. from home. And if I'm a student, so what if I don't have an A or B grading for my project work, right? So am I going to stress myself out by looking for other activities to put on my resume so that I can distinguish myself from other students for a scholarship for that place in university? But as you said, it's outside of government jurisdiction, right? I mean, the mental and mindset issue, that's probably what we'll have to see how it takes on, you know. It may yes. be a new era for these government initiatives, but is it a new era for the way Singaporeans think? Yeah, and I think that's still a huge question mark because, for example, if the Ministry of Education you know, moves that goalpost, are parents and employers going to continue moving that goalpost as yeah, well? Yeah. Are employers still willing to hire people who are non-graduates? I mean, we've heard so much news about the Googles, your IBMs hiring people you know, without a second upper degree mm. or even without a degree at all. But not all companies are practicing that. What about some of the local companies, the SMEs, you know, the MNCs? What are they doing? Yeah, and I, I mean, as an employer, you might be wondering, oh, wait a minute, if I hire a could-be young dad and a could-be young mother in my team and then I have no other singles, what will happen if that entire team just deserts me for, you know, because they're taking paternity leave and maternity Absolutely. leave? So these are the considerations. And I think as employers... You've got to start thinking about this and you've really got to work around it and, and make the best, make better judgment mm -hmm. decisions and also not be, as you said, you know, again, it forces us as employers or even as parents to be, adopt a new si set of thinking to be more inclusive. Parents might now be, I'm pretty sure you get all these reactions in the forum letters in Straits Times. Parents are worried, right? Oh, wait a minute. There's no marker now for me, my, my child in the mid-year exams. Yeah, and even the students themselves are worried. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so it's all this pressure that was handed down from the current generation of parents because I don't, my parents were, didn't care. Of course, I'm much older, but the newer generation of parents in their 30s, they are all highly driven people, you know. So they expect markers and KPIs of their own children, I'm pretty sure, even though they might not like to say it publicly. Yeah, so, so I guess the test is us. Just is indeed us. Yeah. And I think there's also a, a sort of a time-based um, hurdle to cross as well. So we're, we're talking about like, housing, you know. Yeah, housing, like yes, yeah. And, and the thing is, you know, if you were a child who had parents who lived in landed housing, which was very cheap yeah. you know, at a certain point in time in Singapore's history, even if you're able to afford a condo or private housing, would you look back on the lives that your parents led and question if things have 
truly become better? Mm. Um, or do you feel that whatever the government is doing, whether it's in terms of you know imposing taxes, you know, you know, changing in a sense the the educational uh, benchmarks, do you believe that this is being done at the expense of your own middle class dreams? And what is the middle class or Singaporean dream anyway? As one MP said during the housing debate in Parliament, you can't soothe people's emotions using statistics. Mm, so true, right? Yeah. And I so, guess, yeah. Especially when you're younger, it's hard, harder to make sense of the statistics, yeah. So how will these feelings play out, not just in the immediate post-pandemic future, but also ahead of the next general election due by 2025? Because now we are sort of at the halfway mark, you know, with Parliament being prorogued recently. Mm. Um, so while I'm optimistic on the whole, and I think most Singaporeans are and are quite pleased with the budget, but it does come with caveats because, hey, we're not Singaporean if we don't complain, right? That's right. We were complaining when we were born. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we see it as a birthright. <laughs> so Grace, uh, to wrap things up, thanks for the discussion. What is happening with Parliament now? I understand it's gone into its customary midterm break and when will it reconvene? So, Parliament has gone into its customary midterm break and will reconvene on April 10 with a fresh agenda. Um, This is a two-week recess known as a prorogue, and it marks the midpoint of the government's term, which allows it to review important issues and set the direction of the government. Um, When we say recess, you know, it means that its activities are put on hold. So it's very different from dissolving the Parliament, which actually leads to a general election. Two quite different things. But basically, in terms of timeline, each term of parliament lasts for a maximum of five years. And so that prorogation happens around the midpoint, mm. which is where we are at now. Okay. On April 10th at 8.30pm, the new session of the 14th parliament will kick off with an address by President Halima Yaakob. She will outline the government's priorities, policies and programs for the rest of the term ahead of the next election, which has to be held by 2025. So if Madam Halima doesn't seek a second term in the upcoming presidential election to be held by September this year, then this will be her third and last president's address. All right, good to know that. And thanks, Grace, for coming on the show. We hope you will be able to find time later this year to co-host again for our podcast, In Your Opinion. I hope so too. Thank you, Ernest, for having me. Well, that's a wrap for In Your Opinion. I'm Ernest Lewis. If you resonate with the points raised, do share this podcast episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to read ours and Grace Ho's columns, there are links in our podcast text description. Thanks for listening. That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times, and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.